Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Hi, this is James Mercer from The Shins. This is Shirley Manson. This is Low Tallest, co-founder of The Cure. This is Huey Lewis giving you the story behind the song. The story behind the song is back with an exciting second season. We peel back the layers on music's most iconic hits with legendary artists like The Killers, Heart, The B-52s, Violent Femmes, Jewel, Huey Lewis, Modern English, and more. To keep the music flowing, we'll be sprinkling in classic episodes from our archives between each new one. So check out the story behind the song wherever you get your podcast. Hello again. It's the Spark Parade, a show where I talk to amazing people about the art and culture that's shaped their lives. I'm Adam Ons. Thank you so much for joining me. Coming up this week, you'll hear my chat with filmmaker Anetta Laufer about her love for three seemingly disparate but in fact, as we discovered, closely linked subjects. Alan Parker's seminal 1980 film Fame, Jamaican poet Louise Bennett, and filmmaker John Cassavetes. It's a really great conversation, and you're going to learn a lot. You'll be a different person once you've heard it. A, a better person. Exciting, right? One of the major links between the three subjects we discussed is the use of naturalism. What is naturalism, you say? Who better to answer that question than the dictionary? Yay, the dictionary! Naturalism is a style and theory of representation based on the accurate depiction of detail. Great. But what does that mean? Well, when it comes to art, it's about creating a version of reality that's as close to the real world as possible. But what does that even mean? So art can never be a true reflection of reality because the artist's opinion is always incorporated in its creation. Even documentaries can't really be a neutral presentation of reality because they're created from the vantage point of their directors. Naturalist art acknowledges that it is not entirely accurate or convincing as a copy of reality, but it strives to be the next best thing. This is achieved by different means across different media, but it always boils down to a carefully preserved illusion that, if properly executed, is nearly indistinguishable from the reality it portrays. So when it comes to theater, the challenge is to convince the audience that they're spying on real conversations and real relationships, even when it's clear that they're not. The fact that they're in a theater surrounded by other audience members will always destroy that illusion, but the staging and performances of realist theater do their best to help the audience forget their environment. The dialogue, though projected because they're in the theater, is spoken in a conversational manner. The sets and props are as accurate and convincing as possible. In naturalist film, the lighting and sets and camera angles are all designed to create a world that resembles the quote-unquote real world as closely as possible. 
Naturalism is also about subject matter. By some definitions, naturalist work should present a representation of ordinary life. The difficulty in achieving that, and any other definition of naturalism, is subjectivity. What seems real to one person may seem totally over the top to someone else. And when it comes to acting, stylistic trends in what is seen to be believable will change over time. So if you look at a drama from the 80s, the acting can appear melodramatic instead of realistic because our definition of what constitutes realistic acting has evolved. Yet even when facing all of these hurdles, artists continue to strive towards creating art that mimics reality as closely as possible. One of art's most critical functions is to document and reflect the artist's view of the world around them. And I think that's a pretty noble pursuit. Okay, got it. Good enough. Great. Let's move along then, shall we? Here comes my chat with Annette Laufer about fame, Louise Bennett, and John Cassavetes. So why don't we start with fame? Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> do you remember when you saw it for the first time? Yes. Um, so I grew up in Germany and mm. um, I'm Jamaican German. My mother's Jamaican and um, my father's German. And um, I, even though I was born in England, I grew up uh, in Germany. I was there from when I was about six or something. And um, I grew up in a very small kind of German village. And um, we had one cinema sort of in the next village and it was very difficult to watch films because they would be sort of one film that would be on once a week or something like that. And um, my mum was a dancer and she moved to England when she was about 11 from Jamaica and then had this kind of really fascinating life as a dancer in London in the 60s. And she told me about um, her life then and what it was like and I was always fascinated by this world and and um, she would teach me sort of ballet moves and I became really obsessed with dancing. But I, it just felt like it was a very far away world from the world that I was growing up in. And um, I used to watch, there used to be like matinees on Saturday and Sunday on television. And I would watch musicals just, I'd loved musicals. I was never like a huge kind of fan, but I just loved watching them. They were really fun to watch and the dancing was great. And I enjoyed Gene Kelly and mm. and and people like that and um but it felt like it was a different world and it was hollywood and it just felt so far removed from my world so when fame came out it was a very different thing because it didn't feel like a musical it just because it was too naturalistic and the characters were not sort of these glamorous sort of um white characters they were just such a diverse kind of a uh, group of characters that i could relate to and they had problems and they had issues and yet they were these incredibly talented people and um I just, it opened my world for the first time to think that not only were these people that I could relate to who were doing these amazing things with music and dance and whatever, but um, they were in a school which I could relate to as well because I was still at school. And I just suddenly felt like there was an opportunity, not an opportunity, it felt like it was no longer a dream to do this. It felt like this was a real thing that people could do. So when I watched it, I just was amazed by their drive and um, and the things that 
that they did. And I just became hooked and decided I was going to be a dancer. I was going to be a performer. Mm. And the, the TV series came out afterwards. I moved to England when I was about 15. I moved back to London. And at that point, the TV series had come out. And even though the TV series was not, as for me, not as good as the original film, because I felt like the film was very much it felt so real, whereas the TV series had gone back to being sort of more traditional Hollywood sort of stuff. I kind of felt that I had an opportunity to try this out because I just felt like this film was giving me the kind of the hope that it was possible. And so I started taking dance classes and went to the Laban Centre. And my idea was that I was going to be a dancer. I didn't end up being a dancer. I then went to acting, which then led me to theatre, which then led me eventually to directing. But um, fame basically started that whole process for me. Mm, that's amazing. And uh, like, I, I'd never, you know, obviously, I've seen the film a million times. And I loved the TV show, although the same as what you said, it was not anywhere near as grounded, or I didn't feel like I could relate to it as much because it had that kind of heightened TV mm. feeling to it. But that idea of showing a progression for artists, young artists, like how they can get involved in art and the process of studying it and showing it over the four years of being in high school. I don't know if anything anyone had ever shown that progression in such explicit detail. Like, I'm sure there have been artworks about studying art, mm. but this was very specific. And also, like you said, you know, set in New York City and showing this really broad range of students studying different forms of art and, yeah, just being involved in the process, but not in a way that is... You know, Glamorized. Right, right. But still not boring for the audience. It's not like, you know, humdrum, uh, mm. you know, feeling like doing the kind of grunt work of learning to be an artist, just really fascinating, but so easy to relate to. And for people who are interested in art, feeling like, oh, this is the way that this could happen. Mm. Um, mm. For sure. And I think what I didn't realize this until much later on is the thing that attracted me most was that it felt very, very realistic and very um, authentic. And later on, because at the time when I watched it, I was just watching it as a young person watching a film and being completely enamored of the story and the characters. But then later on, as, a, as I became a filmmaker and sort of went back and looked at it again, I suddenly realized there was a, a theme going between all my work, which is this kind of authenticity of, of characters and, and a sort of naturalism that I got very excited by. But at the time, I didn't know that it was that. I just felt like I was stepping into a world that felt real and that I could connect to. And again, with um, the all the dancing, even though, of course, it was choreographed and of course it was staged, but it kind of felt spontaneous. Mm -hmm. Like it was like this choreographed chaos in a way, particularly the street dancing sequences. It just looked like people were actually running out onto the street. I don't think it was 42nd Street or something. And they were just like dancing and it didn't feel like a, a number. It just felt like an event that was happening. And later on, when I sort of, and also looking back at my work now, where realism and naturalism is something that I feel very strongly about and, and I use in my work quite a lot. That was the beginning 
for me in a way. That genuine sort of documentary style setting was something that I took with me, but didn't find out until much later that that was a style that I was actually in love with. Yeah. And it is remarkable that he was able to find such talented people who they're acting, you know, a a lot of the people who were cast were completely unknown and came from nowhere as far as the filmmaking world was concerned. Yeah. And were just really able to convey that naturalism that was needed in, um... Of course, yes. I mean, one of the things that he did, which I, again, didn't know at the time, but sort of as a filmmaker later, sort of looking back, because, I mean, he spent months and months and months trying to find the, the right students, and he cast the actors who were very close to the characters, which you tend to do when you're working with non-actors or with, mm-hmm. with children. Yeah. You, um, you look for who they are as people and then sort of cast them close to the characters so that they don't need to act. They can mm-hmm. sort of be much more themselves which will then produce a very naturalistic kind of performance and and I loved um, when I read up about how he kind of he rewrote the script and he basically went into the performing arts school the New York performing arts school and just hung out with these students and listened to their stories and incorporated a lot of their experiences into his draft of the screenplay and um, again to me that is a process that I really enjoy doing now as a filmmaker but at the time, again, I didn't know that. I was just watching these people who seemed so real. But then, of course, they would seem real because they are playing a version of themselves. Mm-hmm. And um, that was really exciting to watch because up until then, it was just like big numbers in, in beautiful costumes and huge orchestrated music and people tap dancing and sort of saying these kind of corny but fun lines. And then suddenly you had these people who were just being real mm-hmm. and dancing and singing. That was really, really interesting to me. Yeah. And I think it is such a skill for Uh, Mm. director and for casting directors to be able to identify the people who can play specific roles. And yeah, in a way, it's almost to the reverse of a normal casting process where you have this character and you're looking for somebody who is able to act well enough that they can become the character. And instead, you have this person who is Mm. charismatic in whatever way and seems like somebody who can fit into the work that you're creating and trying to find the role that best matches is their personality yeah absolutely i think i mean it's it, it definitely is a skill it's something again that i've over the years worked with many non-actors and have used them in my in theater that i've directed but also in films that i've made and it's a I find a very fascinating process. It's it's also quite stressful because what they bring, the naturalism, but what they don't bring is the professionalism. So they won't know, for example, how to deal with the boredom of of waiting around on set or doing six or seven takes or something. So you have to try and find a way to keep them inspired and to, to keep them playful so that they can produce a performance. And that's very different from a very experienced actor sort of taking them aside uh, on take seven and going, okay, I want you to do this and then bang, they'll do it. Mm -hmm. So um, there there is a different process with that. But um, I've always found it really interesting to see. I I find that with children quite a lot that you have to keep them playful. You have to inspire them with something so that they stop thinking about acting and just 
are in the moment. And I just feel like Frame did that with everybody. Um, mm-hmm. There were some more experienced actors than others there, but still it was just, it was a wonderful sort of palette of naturalistic acting there that I really, really enjoyed. The other thing that I thought was really interesting as well was, aside from the acting, is, is the whole idea of this kind of fame, what fame means. Mm-hmm. And um, we have this idea, whether it's the American dream, it doesn't need to even just be the American. I think it's the European dream as well of this idea of what fame means and it's been very romanticized over the years and suddenly there was this film that was showing these characters who were experiencing humiliation or who were you know experiencing rejection in a way that is just very demoralizing and that was being included in this quotation marks fame kind of musical I thought that was really new and really interesting again something that I just kind of rediscovered when I watched it again later on the other thing that I thought was really exciting was the structure of it because it was it was not a sort of rags to riches kind of story again which is a very kind of conventional plot for a lot of um, musicals but it was showing these vignettes almost of like You know, there were like these fragments of these blocks that were sort of titled audition, the auditions, freshman year and and so forth. And um, it wasn't a kind of a natural conventional story arc. So again, I was just like, oh, this is just so different. It's really interesting. You just feel like you've been dropped into a world with these characters and you're just experiencing some of the daily life of what they are experiencing as artists who are being trained at school. Mm hmm. And I think it is a testament to the skill of the filmmaking that even though it's showing the tougher side of striving to succeed as an artist, it is no less intoxicating. It's no less interesting. Mm. And it's still, I mean, I I ended up going to a performing arts high school and I remember auditioning and feeling like, oh my God, this is just (laughs) like frame. Um, (laughs) And, you know, the reality is just like going to school but um yeah yeah, that uh idea always stuck in my mind and it was you know as someone who was interested in the arts and and knew that I wanted to be involved seeing that pressure on screen just made me feel like oh but I'll be one of the ones who is (laughs) you know breezes past all of that it's gonna be yeah we um, all do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I went I went to drama school and I, I remember my, my audition and I remember the sort of first year. And there's just so many parallels that I can draw from, well, we didn't have this shabby school. We went in New York, we were in London, but it's still the experiences of the hope and dreams when you step into the school and then what you're confronted with, the level of rejection that you need to get used to and the thick skin that you need to build up. And I, th- I just thought it was really quite true to life in a way yeah it's all sort of encapsulated in uh debbie allen uh, i think that's from the tv show say <laughs> yes. you know you gotta sweat <laughs> yeah basically yeah yeah oh god um, <laughs> good old days yes uh so in the interest of time we should probably uh move along to another topic uh speaking of people who attended drama school louise bennett Mm-hmm. Same introductory question. Do you remember how you were introduced to her work? Um, yes, I actually, I was doing some research or something in a library and I found her book and it was a collection sort of selected poems by Louise Bennett or something. And I had no idea who she was. And so I was like, mm, okay, Jamaican. And I opened the book and it was poems all 
written in Patois. And growing up, my um, I'm used to Patois because my grandmother, she speaks Patois and um, it's been in my life all the time. So I understand it. I don't speak it, but I understand it and I can read it. But I'd never seen it written before. And what I found exciting was not only was she taking Patois and she was using it in, in an artistic way, but she was bringing in the sense of humour. Jamaican humour has a very wicked wit mm. and and um, she was using that and she was celebrating the dialect. And I just was so in awe of this because I'd only ever heard Patois in my family. And the whole idea was that Patois was just like this rough language that, you know, the working class spoke and that everybody was striving to speak standard English. And even when I went to drama school, you know, the whole point was to learn RP or received pronunciation. And uh, that was considered the way to to speak and then suddenly I discovered this woman who back in the 40s already was trying to remind Jamaicans that this was part of their culture and this was something to be celebrated and and also the cultural history of, of Jamaica as well, well I, Caribbean but particularly Jamaican because she was Jamaican and um, I just found this incredibly exciting and so that changed the way I started writing so I created or oh, I wrote a film Film called Winnie and the Duppy Bat, which was basically taking certain Jamaican folklore and putting it into these characters who were living in London. And it was the first script that I had characters speak Patois. And I actually wrote perhaps the Patois in the script. And it just changed the way I started writing my films. And so now I, because I have a, I'm very into using my Jamaican background to explore what it is to be in Britain. I use Patwa quite a lot with some of the characters and so, and it's been quite successful. So that is thanks to Louise Bennett, really. There's this great saying that she liberated Jamaica from the Queen's English. And I love that mm. because what she was basically saying was that she was trying to enable Caribbean authors to write in their language other than to just accept the language of the colonizers, so to speak. And she was very unapologetic about that. And I found that quite subversive really mm. and really interesting and I, I love as well there was this story she told because she's such a storyteller and you can find her online there's just so many clips and people have recorded her uh, not only reciting the poetry which if anyone has a chance they should go online and have it because she, the way she recites them is amazing but she talks about when she first became a poet and she used to write in standard English and felt that she didn't connect with her poems and when you look at the poems it's all about tiny clouds and wistful trees and the moonlight and stuff and then she had this experience I think it was on the bus or on the tram or something and she had some interaction with uh, somebody on the bus and it sort of inspired her to write the first dialect poem and then she just like exploded from then on and sort of really found her niche and I just to me it was a, a very inspiring read and made me connect with my Jamaican side in, in a really kind of creative way mm. I also find it really interesting that she studied at the Royal Academy. She, I believe, yes. was the first black person yes. to be admitted. Yes. Um, 
And I know a huge part of drama school is saying, as you said, learning to speak using RP, uh, yes. you know, kind of removing all traces of your cultural identity and yes. trying to have everything uniform, at least as a starting point so that everyone is, you know, kind of a in, you know, in quotes, blank canvas. But having had that experience and then producing these traditional kinds of poetry that everyone expects when they think of Mm. poems and finding true freedom in expressing herself using her cultural identity to create work. Um, Yeah. uh, That's so incredible to me. And just thinking about kind of the history of colonialism and the pressure to conform to this English ideal of what language should be, what poetry should be. Absolutely. And what becomes really interesting is because of uh, uh, the Caribbean being colonial Britain in a way. So many Caribbeans or Jamaicans who came over at that time, they had grown up believing they were British because that is what the school system taught them. So coming over to Britain in the 40s and 50s and 60s, they were expecting to be British. So when they were not treated as British, but treated as immigrants and foreigners, that was really quite a big surprise to them. And the racism that they faced was just completely a shock to them because as far as they were concerned, they loved the Queen and they knew everything about um, British history. So for someone like Louise Bennett, to go to Rada and to then present her authentic Caribbean self, I think was a very brave thing to do. I read that she had, they did a a production of Romeo and Juliet and she played the nurse and she did it in a Patois accent. So speaking Shakespeare in Patois, I just thought was in 1945 was something incredibly brave. And so when I went to drama school and I did a production, we did a production of Midsummer Night's Dream and I played Titania, I did it in in a patois accent and it became really interesting to look at the language like how the vowels sound in Shakespeare and the patois sound because I was told by a Shakespeare expert that old English they actually had very similar vowel sounds to the patois so it it was incredibly easy for me to adopt the patois and Shakespeare it became very fluid and again thanks to her it was just like you know this kind of going back to your authentic kind of identity and going, this is who I am, or this is a part of who I am, and I'm proud and I would like to present it in this what is considered a very British traditional setting. That was something that I thank her for, really. Yeah. And then in her own work, not only presenting Patois as something to celebrate and be proud of, but also the subject matter talking Mm. about working class people's experiences, especially working class women and day-to-day experiences from her own life or from a specifically Jamaican perspective and Mm. allowing that to be something that is a source of pride, a source of celebration and joy and rejecting the idea that the only poetry that is to be celebrated, the only language that's to be celebrated is white English. Right. Um, Yeah. I think what was also really uh, today, looking at what she means to people today, is she had a very deep understanding of of rural Jamaican language, but also of proverbs and traditions. Mm -hmm. And as a Jamaican, German, European living in Britain uh, kind of person, um, I'm 
second generation Caribbean in that sense. But we've moved on since post-war. It's now sort of fifth generation Caribbeans who, who live in Britain. And we've integrated quite a lot into British society. And a lot of the cultural practices and traditions are lost with some of the younger people because you've integrated and you become part of Britain and not many of the young Caribbean, second, third, fourth generation may go back to Jamaica and experience some of those traditions. So someone like her, she's reminding us of uh, certain things that we used to do or, you know, certain things that still happen like nine nights. Nine nights is a a particular kind of tradition that when somebody dies, you go into their house and there is nine nights of celebration or celebrating that person's life before the funeral so that they can go off and be in heaven or wherever it is that they go, that they will have a good journey. Nine night doesn't really happen in nine nights in the same way in Britain anymore because people have to work, but you will have one night instead of nine nights. But that tradition will still remain and there's certain things that you do at that tradition where you move around the furniture so that the spirit won't recognize its home so that they don't want to stay. You will talk about them, you will play dominoes, you will have music, there's a particular kind of dance that you do which will free them. So all these kind of things and she talks a lot about this stuff not only in her work but in the kind of education and all the kind of things that she left behind and it's something that I use all the time to just remind myself of where I come from. Yeah. And I guess having second or third generation kids whose families have come from the Caribbean, mm. um, maybe hearing about cultural traditions or, you know, knowing specific phrases or just things that have been perhaps passed down or discussed in the home, but not necessarily aren't as ingrained culturally as they would have been if they had grown up in mm. um, Jamaica. Having art that is explicit about those experiences and celebrating those traditions and having a reference point that's outside of their family that allows them to dig in a little deeper into those traditions um, is, is really cool. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Also, I mean, all three of these topics, I think, go back to this sense of naturalism as well. Yes. Um, yes. And really creating art that depicts life the way that it is. And it's this very grounded everyday experiences in uh, in art. Do you know, it was really funny that I didn't actually notice until I sort of thought about it, like what I was going to do and started thinking about what was interesting to talk about, I suddenly saw the connection between all three of them. And I just thought that's so interesting that I, it doesn't occur to me, but when you suddenly have to look at what inspires you and where you get your ideas from, there's always a theme there. There's always a connection there. And because um, if you think about it, like fame, Louise Bennett and then Cassavetes, it's like they couldn't be far removed from each other. And yet they're not at all because mm -hmm. at the end of the day it's all about authenticity some kind of realism that i'm very attracted to yeah do you again asking the same boring question for a third time do you remember <laughs> uh being introduced to john cassavetti's work yes i was actually i was living in denmark at the time and i was making a film and it was my first kind of bigger film i was just starting out i just left theater as a as a director and um, i'd always been attracted to film and so i decided <laughs> to make this film which was kind of a charlie's angel meets midsummer night's dream 
same, some mashup kind of weirdness that I decided to write. But the three characters, the three women, were kind of in this semi-gangster kind of world. And somebody had said, oh, it may be good for you to have a look at this film, Gloria, by Cassavetes, to to look at the, the idea of a, a female gangster. And so I was like, oh, gangster mall, yeah, maybe interesting for my type of film that I was making. And then I just got blown away because it wasn't that at all. It wasn't a genre film. It actually played with the whole gangster genre. And what I found most interesting, like the biggest thing in that film for me, which just totally blew me away, was the violence that happens at the beginning of the film where this family is wiped out and effectively murdered. And you see nothing of that, but you focus on the close-up of a six-year-old who who is basically whose family it is and whose family is being murdered and you're just watching this young boy's face and that just was such an eye-opener to me to what the camera can do in terms of depicting emotion and I just I don't know how many times I watched that film and how many times I cried I now today I don't think it's one of his best but it was the one that introduced me into what Cassavetes was all about, which was basically about the frailty and imperfections of, of human beings, their need for love, their security, and the sort of emotion, emotional turmoil that they may go through. So I had seen that and I was just hooked. I was like, oh God, I've got, what else has he done? I need to watch, I need to watch, and basically watched his whole catalogue. And at the time, it, the internet hadn't really sort of, was not there, so it was very difficult to come by his films. Again, in Denmark, I was in Copenhagen, but it just, you wouldn't just get these films at like a, a video store because they were art house films but the next film I watched was uh, Woman Under the Influence and then that sort of turned me into a complete fan particularly Gina Rowland's because her performance to this day I've not seen a performance as harrowing as that one the love and the violence that incorporates their relationship the intimacy and yet the aggression and just generally the pain and the soul bearing each camera close up sort of revealed just changed the way I looked at filmmaking and again I had looked at Tarkovsky and I'd looked at all these sort of other great filmmakers and I'm, I'm a big fan of so many filmmakers for so many different reasons but I always come back to Cassavetes because what Cassavetes does for me is he really helps me come back to the naked truth of any kind of performance and yeah that's that's what got me going then I saw faces and again it was all about the face. It's all about removing the masks in that film and about showing the humanity underneath. And it's about a disintegrating marriage and infidelity and all those things. But what it was really doing was showing, for me, again, the camera was showing all the kind of emotional trauma of any breakup, of any kind of unhappiness. It was slowly being sort of revealed like an onion, sort of peeling the skin away. And you got closer and closer and closer until you just it was like I couldn't cope anymore in a good way I couldn't mm. cope with watching the pain on the these people's faces and that to me was like well if I want to tell stories and I'm so I'm so in love with telling emotional stories then this is what I need to do or this is what I need to aspire to do so yeah it again he he changed the way I looked at filmmaking again I know 
when Cass- people talk about Casalettis, they talk a lot about his improvising and how people improvise. And the thing is, they never improvised on camera. They improvised in rehearsal. And then he would write something and then they would film it. And coming from a theatre background where improvising, again, improvising in between scenes in order to understand emotionally where your character was going or to try and develop a, a relationship that, you know, you needed to figure out on stage where you were going and stuff. I didn't know you could do that with film. Mm. I thought that was just a theatre thing. So when I saw his films and then I read up about his process, I got really excited because it was something that I knew from theatre, but I thought film was a different thing, a different beast. And he showed me that I could use the skills that I had in theatre and I could apply them to my rehearsal. Well, rehearsal process in film is very little, but I could still use those skills to quickly get to a point with the actors to produce, again, a naturalistic performance, which is something that I always strive for. The other thing that was really exciting was that he was so independent. I mean, he just picked up cameras. He didn't have permits. You know, they would run out into the street they would like shoot stuff like concealing the camera being quite far away so they they would get stuff and he did like I remember I think it was for Shadows which is the first film that he did his first feature film from 1959 or something where he went on the radio and spoke to the uh, listeners calling them to invest in his project by saying you know this is this project it deals with racial issues and anyone who wants to contribute funds to to uh, get this film made, please contact me. This is like first crowdfunding campaign, mm, mm-hmm. you know? This is, and I think he got like two grand or something that he then could put towards um, his film. And that is just like, he is the sort of true independent filmmaker in that way. I'm sure there are many others who did this too. And when I look at black filmmakers who struggled so much to get their films made, particularly in the 60s and 70s, even today, we're still struggling to, to get our films made, although there is this renaissance that is happening, thank God, where more black voices are being heard. But to me, it was showed that it was possible to pick up a camera and shoot and not to to wait for the establishment to tell you you could. Yeah. Um, so that was a very important thing for me to discover. And I did that through him. And I think all of those components created this really specific style that is so uniquely his. And Mm. without having the naturalism, his filming with like handheld cameras a lot and using natural light and working with actors who outside of key people like Jenna Rollins and Peter Falk, like Mm, mm. people who are not very known, but still, as was the case with fame, having the skill to find actors who could act naturalistically, who could work with his process and, as you said, improvising to develop a script, but then using the script to act in a really naturalistic way that didn't feel like it had gone from improvising to fully scripted and you know felt like a traditional film it still felt really improvisational Um, Mm. I think what was really important to his process and why I think he ended up working with why people kept coming back is a he was an actor so he understood mm -hmm. 
the the process of the actor and for him the actor was like the center of everything so it was all about the actor which is why his camera work was so anarchic he didn't really care about camera work in the same way or he didn't really structure and you know your your beginning your inciting incident your you know plot point one point mm-hmm. he didn't really care about any of that for him it was all about the emotion and about the performance and and what is it that the actor is telling and i think that is what identifies his style really is that he understood the actor and he understood the process of the actor and so for him it was really important to just like get out of the way of directing and let them do the work and I think these days it's very difficult for directors to do that they're so frightened of letting the actor take over because there's just like there's time and there's this and there's equipment and there's money and there's all these kind of things and so they want to control everything and I think it's very daring is not the right word but it it can feel quite as quite frightening as a director to let go mm-hmm. and let the actors do the work and give you stuff which you then can turn into something obviously you need to have good actors but you need to understand what good acting is and good acting is not necessarily a famous actor mm-hmm. good acting is somebody who is brave enough to to be open and let you in and i think he he understood that and he just put the camera right there to let us watch that which was really exciting and that ties back into uh his independence that 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 kind of filmmaking would not be possible in a studio system it's like way too much pressure to make money and Mm. to have traditional financial success Mm. uh and the way that he worked focusing on actors and allowing them to have the freedom to do their best work that that could only really happen without any studio executives hanging over his shoulder telling him that he needs to tighten things up or have a more traditional plot structure or, Mm. you know, tighter script or whatever the concerns would be. So, yeah, it's really amazing that he maintained that independence and really stuck to his guns, you know, refusing money from anyone who would interfere with the creative process. Yeah, and it wasn't easy either. I I think there's many times where he had to remortgage his house and do things Mm -hmm. like that in order to just... But that is how true he was to to being independent because he he understood that the system wouldn't allow him to tell the stories he wanted to tell and i think what we have today is you know the the good thing is that equipment has become so much cheaper so there's a democracy that has established itself in a way that we can be far more independent as filmmakers these days than he could have been because it was so much more expensive with film. You can take a phone now and you can make a film, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're good, but it does mean that you are, you have access to telling stories in a way that was far more difficult when he first started out. But I still think that his process and his way of looking at finding the truth is something that will always live with me because that is at the end of the day, the truth, which of course it's subjective, but it's a truth within the process and within the story that I want to tell. And when I find myself lost, I always go back to his films to to remind myself of that, I think. Yeah, I think technology has allowed for the democratization of a lot of different art forms, you know, making music and... Yes. Uh, definitely filmmaking. You know, I was thinking when you were saying about making films on phones, like films like Tangerine that um, 
you know, for example, yeah. more likely than not would would not have been able to be made if, yeah. um, you know, that technology weren't available. But just thinking that Cassavetes being this sort of pioneer at a time when it was so much more difficult to make those things happen, it's, it's really admirable to be that committed to his his own vision and mm. to his actor's work to mm. really refuse to compromise in that way. Yeah, totally. So, mm. yeah, I am extremely happy. Uh, do you feel good? Yes. It's Wonderful. always good to talk about things that inspire you. Right? Yes. It's such a joy. Absolutely. Great. So if people listening to this want to find out more about your work, where would they do that? They can go to my website, which is romancandleproductions.com. And there's stuff about my films there. I'm also on Twitter. Annette Laufer is my handle. And yeah. Perfect. Um, great. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. This is like three really interesting topics. So it was a... A real treat. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you for talking to me. Okay, take care. You too. Bye. Bye. Yay, that was so much fun. Thanks again to Anetta. I had an absolute blast chatting with her. Please check out her work because it's incredible as well. All right, recommendation? Why not? Uh, I've just started watching The Boys on Amazon. It's a TV show about a world in which superheroes are relatively common and they are assigned areas of the country to protect. They're celebrities and a lot of them are absolute assholes. The show is funny and exciting and it has lots of action and Chase Crawford's ass if you're into that. So what else can you really ask for? Um, It's got some pretty violent bits in it, so just be aware of that if you're affected by that kind of stuff. But I found it thoroughly entertaining, and sometimes thorough entertainment is all you need. Okay, kids, that's all I've got this week. Please, I beg of you, follow me on social media, at Spark Parade. Please, please, pretty please, rate and review the show wherever you stream or download it. And send me your art recommendations, too. This is a two-way street. There's full reciprocity between us when it comes to sharing the art we enjoy, so hold up your end of the bargain. Comment with your suggestions or DM me if you're feeling shy and you don't want to post in a public forum. Okay? Thanks! Have a great week, my friends. Until next time, bye! Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. 
Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.